Hello, I'm Gemma Birrell, Artistic Director of the 2014 Sydney Writers' Festival. You're listening to The Luminaries with Eleanor Catton, interviewed by Stephen Gale and recorded live at the festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Stephen Gale. I'm very, very pleased to welcome you to Sydney Writers' Festival this evening for what I think promises to be a special event with our guest, Eleanor Catton. Um, Eleanor was born in Canada and raised in New Zealand. She holds an MA from Victoria University, Wellington, and an MFA from the University of Iowa, what Writers' Workshop. Her first novel, The Rehearsal, was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award and won the prestigious Betty Trask Award, among others. It has since been published in 17 territories uh, and in no fewer than 12 languages. She followed this with the publication last year of her second novel, The Luminaries, a marvellous achievement set in the mid-1860s gold rush on the west coast of New Zealand. Uh, This won the Governor General's Award for Fiction in Canada and, of course, was also the 2013 Man Booker Prize winner. Eleanor and I are going to discuss the book. Um, She'll read a little from the book uh, midway through our event. Uh, We'll be sure to leave plenty of time for your questions as well. But if you would, I'd ask you to join me again in welcoming Eleanor Catton. Um, I mean, The Luminaries has been a huge and justified success. It's a a marvellous piece of work. Um, Could I just take you back to the point when you delivered that manuscript? (laughs) Yes, and some, I think, two years behind deadline I was. Yes, it was a really interesting day, actually. I, you know, as I say, I was very, very behind. Uh, the Luminaries was the second in a two-book contract that I had with my British publishers, Granta. And um, they had been asking for the novel for some time. Uh, but the way that I work is that I, when I get to the end of the book that I'm writing, it's because it's finished. I don't draft. Yeah. And because this was colossally long and kind of much longer than I ever... Um, dreamed or indeed wanted it to be really, um, well, certainly when I set out, I was, it kind of felt as though the, this deadline was going further and further away from me as well, and I just kind of couldn't, couldn't really do anything about it. And um, Grant was getting very, very anxious, and I later found out it was because they wanted to submit it for the Booker Prize, and they, they had a deadline, but they thankfully kept this from me, and I just thought they were being anxious for no reason, so I kind of kept on going <laughs> off and watching whole seasons of Breaking Bad and this kind of thing, um, that they would then read about on Twitter and get extremely angry about, um, uh, which, is, which is fair enough. Um, but, the, but the interesting thing was about the day that I finished it, um, was that there, there were so many elements, well there are so many elements in the book, that until the day that the book was done, I was never quite sure what they were going to look like when they were finished. Um, and the most pertinent for me was the 
the structural, the overarching yeah. structural conceit. Yeah. Um, and the book has 12 parts, and each one of the 12 parts is half the length of the one before. So the, the book forms a kind of a spiral as it goes down, or it kind of wanes. And I had set out this, this plan for myself, and I, I knew what it could look like, and I kind of had this shadowy idea about how long that would probably mean the book had to be, which was a very theoretical idea. Um, but I, I really wasn't sure if it was going to work. And my, my backup plan, I really didn't want to have to execute. You know, my backup plan was to basically just reshape the book completely if it, if it didn't work. You know, I, I knew that it was something that it had to work absolutely or it, wouldn't, it wasn't going to work at all. Um, and anyway, so the, the, the day after I handed it off, um, in two years late, um, I, I finished the... I remember the scene that I wrote last. It's very close to the end. It wasn't exactly the final scene, but it was about um, kind of three or four pages from the end. And I, I sent it off about 10 o'clock at night and kind of sat down to celebrate and had a glass of wine and went to bed. And when I woke up the next day, I literally felt as though I had shared about 20 kilograms. I, it was very strange. Like I, 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 I got up and, and just floated down the stairs yeah. to make breakfast the next morning. And I realized that I'd been, I mean, the, the very strange, I, I hope this doesn't sound pompous, but the, the very strange thing that I experienced in the days that followed was that I no longer feared, this is kind of, it was short-lived, but for a time, I, I didn't fear dying. It was quite strange. I, I, for, for about maybe um, a year before finishing the book, I was having these terrible nightmares about being suddenly hit by a bus and the experiment of the book would be a failure because it wouldn't have worked. And well, as soon as it was finished, I just felt this weight lifted off me and I, I, didn't, I didn't fear for my own mortality anymore. It was quite odd. Um, but the fears come back, so it was, it was, <laughs> it was short-lived. <laughs> and in, in the, that year or so since, um, notwithstanding its, its <clears throat> great success, but. Has your view of it changed at all? Yes, it has. Um, I actually had my first experience about a month ago. I was on tour in the UK for the paperback, um, the very beautiful blue paperback release in the UK. And I was asked to read a passage that I don't usually read at an event much like this. And, you know, as an author, you, you have your passages that you know, you kind of know quite well. Yeah. And then there's these other one of the more mysterious parts of the book, so some of which you haven't you haven't read over since you have since you wrote them really, yeah. or, or last uh, worked on them. And I was asked to read a passage, and as I was reading it aloud, I had for the very first time uh, the, the, the that you know quite remarkable experience that you get, where you where you think to yourself, I'm now older than the person who wrote this. Um, I, I've read more books than the person who wrote this. Yeah. Um, I, I know more about the world than this yeah. person. And yeah. it's quite, it's, it's a really, it's a funny experience. It's not altogether pleasant, I think. Because um, I think sometimes, it, in a way, it's, it's, you know, you're coming up against a past version of yourself. Um, for, for me, that's much more marked with my first book because I was much younger. Um, and, and kind of much more volatile time of my life in terms of, you know, my essential nature being formed. And so reading that book is ex extremely painful now. Um, because, 
I mean, it, it's, it's a very strange kind of confrontation because you think, well, man, that was, that was, that's raw. That's really, that was my imagination, you know, yes. eight years ago, yes. um, which isn't even that long. Like I dread to think what's going to happen in the, <laughs> in the coming decades. <laughs> Jesus. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, in, in a, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm still on side with the luminaries in a way that with my first book, The Rehearsal, I got offside with it quite quickly after finishing it. And I think it has something to do with um, the challenge of the book, actually. I think that this, this book is really, it, it really pushed me to the limits of what I, I can do. Yes. Um, you know, I just, this is, this is the best that I can do. I can't, <laughs> at the moment, I can't, I can't do any better than that. And I kind of know that. It, it, it emptied me out as a, as a writer. Whereas I think my first book, as with any first book, you're teaching yourself how to write as you go along. Because when you begin it, you've never written a novel before. So, you know, it is your education. And so you don't really know what your limits are. And it becomes a kind of a different kind of a document. Yeah. I mean, personally. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that in a funny way, this book is still teaching me things. And I'm still kind of invested in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, I think the shadow will probably pass quite soon. And I'll move on to yeah. something yeah. else. I mean, it's, I mean, the landscape and the sense of place, it seems to me, is a very, very important part of the novel. And it, now it is a novel, it's fiction, but nevertheless, how familiar were you when you wrote the book with the west coast of New Zealand, with the Hokitika region? Oh, very familiar, actually. Um, my, my sister for a very long time has lived in Fox Glacier, which is um, a glacier about two hours south of Hokitika on the west coast. Um, has recently moved, actually, because for a very sad reason. It's because the, both the glaciers, the major glaciers in New Zealand, are, are shrinking and receding so much that the glacier tourist trade is, um, is in jeopardy, which is what, what had taken her there. Um, and so I've, I've come through Hokitika just a great many times um, by car, going down to visit her. And my family is quite outdoorsy, and we've done a lot of tramping and that kind of thing on the coast. Um, but, the, but the funny thing about the, uh, the presence of the natural world in the novel is that in many ways it was the very first thing that arrived um, to me, I guess. And it occurred to me quite recently that, that the first idea for the book happened when I was 14 years old. And the reason why I was very pleased about this is that it's half the age I am when I, I was when I finished the book, um, which is mathematically pleasing. Um, and, um, but anyway, when I was 14, um, my father, uh, a keen cyclist, um, had a, a family tradition in our household where he would take each of me, my brother and my sister, on an uh, extended cycle trip. And this, this was supposed to be a prize of some kind. We went very unwillingly. Um, and we would go on the back of the, his, one of the, my family's two tandems. You know, we're a very un, deeply uncool family um, for many, many reasons. But this was the, one of the most obvious. Um, uh, we used to bike around Christchurch in this, on this little fleet like, like ducklings, you know. And um, I would just die with shame. Um, but anyway. Uh, our particular cycle trip was to take us to the west coast and back um, over the Lewis Pass and back over the Arthurs Pass in a loop. And, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was hard. You know, I, was, I was 14, I, didn't want, I wanted to be putting on makeup and, I don't know, thinking about boys. I didn't want to be with my dad sweating on a mountain road. Um, 
but I think that it was precisely because it was hard that I kind of developed a relationship on that trip to yeah. that particular landscape. I think yeah. that when you expend energy, um, it means that you just connect with the world in a very, very different way than if you see things from car windows, you know. Yeah. One of the beautiful things about New Zealand as a country is that all of the best places can't be seen from a road. So you, you, you can't, any, anything you can see from a road, it's fine, but it's not, it's not the best places, you know. Um, I really like that about the country. And on that trip, I actually thought, started thinking about the gold fields, which you can't help but, yeah. but do um, in, in that part of the world, just because the detritus of the gold rush is all still there. You know, all of the rusting dredges and the mines are all still there. And um, I started thinking about writing a gold fields mystery on that trip, and then really? it, it kind of came to fruition about, I, I guess, I don't know, maybe 10 years later. Yeah. Yes, it's quite interesting where things take, yeah. take root. Yeah. I, I have one really great story from that trip, which is really only the great story that I can remember, which is at, at one point, um, we were coming down uh, um, and going quite fast, because we were quite loaded up on the tandem uh, around a, a bend. And um, the, from the other direction came a, um, a sheep truck. And just as the sheep truck came around the bend and we came around the bend, there was this enormous gust of wind. And the gust of wind blew this sheet of sheep urine through the, through the slats of the truck. But the brilliant thing about this was, is that I was completely protected, because I was on the back, and my dad just got it all. And he was absolutely soaked, and he started roaring, and I said, what's going on? Like, I didn't even know what was, what was happening. And it turned out that his mouth had been open. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, so that was that was my highlight, <laughs> and and I got a novel out of it too, which is also good. Now, a, a, a couple of months ago, I, I believe you you went back to Hokitika to do an event rather like like this in the theatre there. Can you tell us about that? Oh well, yeah, it was a, it was absolutely wonderful. You know, the um, I, I got told I don't know if this is true, but I got told recently that. Um, this book has doubled Hokitika's GDP, uh, <laughs> uh, which is very funny. I mean, you <laughs> must be quite a small GDP, I think. But um, um, yeah, no, I mean, the town's really just gotten really excited about the book in this really, yeah. um, really wonderful way. People feel a real sense of ownership. They feel um, they feel as though they've been kind of their experience has been lifted into the realm of kind of. I don't know, whatever is literary, the, the literary establishment deems to be true literature, you know, and I think it's, it's been a real boost for a lot of people. Um, but the, the, the truly moving thing about that trip actually was getting welcomed onto the marae by the local iwi. Um, so the uh, West Coast people, uh, Māori uh, tribe, um, when, when I wrote, wrote the book, it was very important to me to use a a, a name for the Māori character who plays, I say plays, we'll talk about that, I guess, uh, plays the figure of Aries, the beginning of the zodiac, the first sign. And um, uh, it was very important to me to give him a, a, a name that could plausibly have been, you know, a, a name in, in, in this tribe or in, in, the, in the family that was, was at the region. And so we were welcomed onto the marae by um, um, descendants of this character, which is kind of quite wonderful, like being welcomed on by um, these little kids, like gorgeous little kids in school uniforms who were the great, great 
grandchildren of somebody who never existed, you know. <laughs> this is really, really nice. Um, but it was just, it was, it was, that, that was, that was incredible to me because I had, you know, I, I ran a lot of risks in a way, um, yeah. writing about experiences that I don't. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about obviously any of the experiences in the book because I have never lived in the 19th century, but um, particularly the Māori character, Taro Tofare, and also the two Chinese characters. I was very anxious not to... Um, I mean, there, there, there are so many traps that one can fall into, you know, and, and, and presuming to know an experience that's, um, that's, that's so outside, really, um, um, what, what a person should ought to presume to know, you know. And so it was, it was really nice to kind of have that positive affirmation that actually they, they felt that I had conferred honor on the family name and they, they, and they, were, they were pleased about that. It's, I mean, it's a very, it's, it's got a great sort of cosmopolitan cast of characters, the novel. I mean, I mean again, I, notwithstanding that it's fiction, how representative is that of that gold rush period? Reasonably, actually. Um, yeah. The funny thing about Hokitika is that it was much more cosmopolitan in, in its beginning, in the beginning kind of decade of its life as a town, than it ever has been ever since, which yeah. I think is, is quite odd for... I mean, it's probably true of a lot of places in Australia, too. Um, uh, and, and that's just kind of fascinating, I think. Um, I know that in Hokitika at that time, the gender breakdown was around about two, uh, one woman for every 10 men. And um, when I found out that statistic, I actually thought, oh, this is, this is brilliant. I'll use, this legitimizes my use of the zodiac as a governing conceit. Um, because in the zodiac, well, in the plan planetary figures, we only really associate the moon and Venus with feminine um, energies, I suppose you could say. Um, and then, um, and we tend, when we're thinking about things in the abstract, to give them a male um, form, I yeah. suppose. So all of the signs of the zodiac then became men for that reason. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that was very, that, that was true to the makeup of the time. And, um, and in terms of the, um, I mean, there were, there were all sorts of interesting things that I discovered, such as the fact that one of the first, I think the second uh, place of worship to be built in Hokitika was a synagogue, which I would never have guessed, because there's, there's not a huge Jewish presence in New Zealand now. Um, so when I started reading up about that and you know, discovered actually there were a great many Jewish people in, in New Zealand at that time, then I kind of wanted to build that in. Um, the only thing that I've, I've invented on that score is, um, in fact, there was no pr Chinese presence at all in Hokitika until around about 1869, 1868, 1869. But um, for plot reasons, I really wanted the Chinese characters, you know, because yeah, sure. they, I mean, opium's such a great tool for a mystery novelist, yeah. um, because yeah. when people are under the influence of, an, you know, a drug, then they, they're not themselves, which is brilliant. Um, and it also explains disappearances, which are kind of, which is everything in a mystery. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. yeah so that, so, yeah. yeah there's, um, there's, there's a, I get a strong sense, I'd like to, to, to talk about this, there's a strong sense all the way through the novel that um, the characters are playing roles. Um, the, the men in particular, I, I think, but... Um, and that's set up right at the beginning in the, in the first scene, I think, where, where Moody arrives in the hotel inn, he you know, goes into the bar, and there are the men there, and it all just sort of freezes, and they're, you know, 
pretending to be playing billiards and so on, but actually they're listening to him and so on and so forth. Could you talk a little about assembling those, those characters? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, well, uh, to go back to the Zodiac, uh, in laying down the, the architecture, I suppose, or the choreography yeah. of the, well, first architecture, then choreography of the um, plot, I used the, the archetypes of the classical zodiac, which is composed of, of really 20 parts. Um, the 12 signs of the zodiac, um, the seven planets, and we have to say planets because it includes the sun and the moon, which obviously aren't planets. Um, and then lastly, the, whatever the point on Earth is that you're looking at the sky from, because that's where everything's calibrated from. Um, and I was, you know, um, really early days when I was kind of just reading up about various things and following my nose here and there and seeing what interested me. I came upon a collected works of Jung and started reading it and just, just went kind of mad, became madly in love with him, um, as sometimes happens, you know. And really, really liked his ideas and, and particularly his writing on archetypes was yes. very, very interesting to me. Yes. And he kind of led me in a way into astrology because he was a keen astrologer yes. himself and um, spoke about the, the zodiac as being in effect a 12-part story, a mythic story, um, a voyage out and then a return um, with a kind of a line of symmetry in the middle, you know, which I'd never thought about before. And so when I, when I was um, thinking about how to do this, I, I thought, like, my first thought was, wouldn't it be cool um, to, or would it be cool, <laughs> first of all, um, uh, to have essentially the, the plot of um, Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, but in reverse. Um, so I won't spoil that for you if you haven't read it, it's really good. Um, but essentially what I wanted in my book was 12 people who would be associated with a crime, yes. but in, in ways that would, um, reflect their, the archetype yes. which they represented. Yeah. And so that was kind of the first idea, and I didn't really have any idea of how the planets would play into that, and then they kind of came later. Um, but I first of all just started looking at the zodiac and thought, how could I turn these archetypes into real people? And so, you know, various things came quite easily. Um, for example, uh, uh, Gemini is associated with the third house of the zodiac, uh, the house of, uh, it's called the house of brothers and communication. And so I made my Gemini character the editor of the local newspaper because that would kind of make sense of that, you know. Um, or, um, oh, and so on and so forth all the way around. I mean, uh, the book begins in Sagittarius and my Sagittarian character um, is a shipping agent uh, for the reason that Sagittarius is associated with the house of <coughs> uh, journeys and kind of voyages. And also actually, um, because Jung associated Sagittarius with the collective unconscious, so I kind of wanted to have that homage to him by beginning, by beginning there, or beginning and ending there. Um, and I think yeah, I mean, it, was an, it, was a, it was a fun way to work, and I don't know if I would ever do it again unless the archetypes were right, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think that there's a, there's a huge, huge difference between an archetype and a stereotype, yeah. um, in that an archetype is extremely shadowy, they don't have, um, they don't have physical form at all, um, they have kind of infinite forms, whereas a stereotype has one form, yeah. um, and it's, it's, it's very different. So um, I've been asked, you know, um, along the road, 
was it a difficult thing to do? Was it a confining thing to do? And I've always said no, because I think it was almost the opposite. It was very, it was like you building backwards from the, from the idea rather than yes. forwards out of a, um, a fixed shape, yes. if that makes sense. Um, so, the, I mean, I would come up against uh, questions along the way, like, how am I going to get, um, you know, how am I going to bring out the Mars aspects of this particular yeah. scene yeah. in a way that doesn't corrupt my Sagittarian archetype? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 I mean, it, yes, yeah. I know, to, to, yeah. <laughs> I know that with my, my theatre experience, was different but analogous, I think. Yes. Where sometimes you have something like, for example, Beckett or something like that, where if you create a structure, sometimes that in itself is liberating. Once you've got your structure, you have your structure, then you can do whatever you want, it seems to me. Oh, I absolutely agree with yeah. that. Um, I think that, you know, especially in plotting, uh, my method throughout this book was always to paint myself into a corner as much as possible, and then get so frustrated at having done that that I started to become inventive. Um, you know, I think it's always true that we have the best ideas and the most, we, get, we come to the most creative solutions when we're the most yes. in a jam. Yes. And I think yes. that, that as a writer, you can, you can kind of um, create those conditions for yourself. Yeah. Um, for a long time, I, I had a good friend who, I have a good friend who called this book my inconvenient novel, because um, she kept on talking about, you know, all the ways in which I was making it inconvenient for myself. Um, and so we laughed about it, but the more I thought about it, the more I think, yeah, actually, I think that that's the job of the writer, especially a, in a plotted book, a book that foregrounds plot, um, that by making things inconvenient for yourself, you're kind of saying to the reader, don't worry, I've, I've got this. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm going to make things inconvenient for me, so it's convenient and fun and pleasurable for you. It's yeah. kind of, yeah, it's a trade-off, yeah. 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 Um, would this be a good point to read? Oh, sure, yeah. So I might just read, I'll just read from the very beginning to um, uh, elaborate on what we're talking about in terms of um, characters playing roles. This is the first chapter, it's called Mercury and Sagittarius. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there's a, a descriptive passage that precedes the narrative, which I'll read. In which a stranger arrives in Hokitika. A secret council is disturbed. Walter Moody conceals his most recent memory and Thomas Balfour begins to tell a story. The 12 men congregated in the smoking room of the Crown Hotel gave the impression of a party accidentally met. From the variety of their comportment and dress, frock coats, tailcoats, Norfolk jackets with buttons of horn, yellow moleskin, cambric and twill, they might have been 12 strangers on a railway car, each bound for a separate quarter of a city that possessed fog and tides enough to divide them. Indeed, the studied isolation of each man as he pored over his paper, or leaned forward to tap his ashes into the grate, or placed the splay of his hand upon the bays to take his shot at billiards, conspired to form the very type of bodily silence that occurs late in the evening on a public railway, deadened here not by the slur and clunk of the coaches, but by the fat clatter of the rain. Such was the perception of Mr. Walter Moody from where he stood in the doorway with his hand upon the frame. He was innocent of having disturbed any kind of private conference, for the speakers had ceased when they heard his tread in the passage. 
By the time he opened the door, each of the 12 men had resumed his occupation, rather haphazardly on the part of the billiard players, for they had forgotten their places, with such a careful show of absorption that no one even glanced up when he stepped into the room. The strictness and uniformity with which the men ignored him might have aroused Mr. Moody's interest, had he been himself in body and temperament. As it was, he was queasy and disturbed. He had known the voyage to West Canterbury would be fatal at worst, an endless rolling trough of white water and spume that ended on the shattered graveyard of the Hokitika Bar, but he had not been prepared for the particular horrors of the journey, of which he was still incapable of speaking even to himself. Moody was by nature impatient of any deficiencies in his own person. Fear and illness both turned him inward, and it was for this reason that he very uncharacteristically failed to assess the tenor of the room he had just entered. Moody's natural expression was one of readiness and attention. His grey eyes were large and unblinking, and his supple, boyish mouth was usually poised in an expression of polite concern. His hair inclined to a tight curl. It had fallen in ringlets to his shoulders in his youth, but now he wore it close against his skull, parted on the side and combed flat with a sweet-smelling pomade that darkened its golden hue to an oily brown. His brow and cheeks were square, his nose straight and his complexion smooth. He was not quite eight and twenty, still swift and exact in his motions, and possessed of the kind of roguish, unsullied vigour that conveys neither gullibility nor guile. He presented himself in the manner of a discreet, discreet and quick-minded butler, and as a consequence was often drawn into the confidence of the least voluble of men, or invited, invited to broker relations between people he had only lately met. He had, in short, an appearance that betrayed very little about his own character, and an appearance that others were immediately inclined to trust. Moody was not unaware of the advantage his inscrutable grace afforded him. Like most excessively beautiful persons, he had studied his own reflection minutely, and in a way knew himself from the outside best. He was always in some chamber of his mind, perceiving himself from the exterior. He had passed a great many hours in the alcove of his private dressing room, where the mirror tripled his image into profile, half-profile, and square, Van Dyck's Charles, though a good deal more striking. It was a private practice, and one he would likely have denied, for how roundly self-examination is condemned by the moral prophets of our age, as if the self had no relation to the self, and one only looked in mirrors to have one's arrogance confirmed, as if the act of self-regarding was not as subtle, fraught, and ever-changing as any bond between twin souls. In his fascination, Moody sought less to praise his own beauty than to master it. Certainly, whenever he caught his own reflection in a window box or in a pane of glass after nightfall, he felt a thrill of satisfaction, but as an engineer might feel, chancing upon a mechanism of his own devising and finding it splendid, flashing, properly oiled and performing exactly as he had predicted it should. He could see his own self now poised in the doorway of the smoking room, and he knew that the figure he cut was one of perfect composure. He was near trembling with fatigue. He was carrying a leaden weight of terror in his gut. He felt shadowed, even dogged. He was filled with dread. He surveyed the room with an air of polite detachment and respect. Thank you. Thank you, Ellie. That's lovely. 
Thank you. Um, we mentioned just before that you know the, the men are in particular playing roles, it seems, quite consciously at times, um, and just set up right at the beginning there. And I was struck by what I see as a, a similarity, but please tell me if I'm wrong, with your first novel, The Rehearsal, the title itself tells us something. Mm. Although in that novel, it's more, which is mainly about women, set in a school, but it's mainly yeah. about young women. It's the women who are playing the roles, it seemed to me. And is this mm. sense of performance and artifice something that's of interest to you? Generally. Oh, very much so. I mean, that's, it's one of the things that actually really attracted me to uh, the Zodiac as a system and, to, and kind of in, inspired me to learn more about the Zodiac, yeah. is this idea of just um, total relationality that exists in the Zodiac, um, which when I started learning ab about, um, about it, it, it made just incredible emotional sense to me, this idea that we change incredibly depending on our surroundings. You know, there, there are people in our lives who, that bring out the best in us and people that bring out, um, you know, the worst in us, potentially. Yeah. And I do feel that, that um, you know, most of us live, I, I would say actually probably that all of us live our lives on a much narrower compass than actually what we're capable of, yeah. both for good and for evil, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that, 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 you know, like I don't, I don't think that there are, um, s certain types of people in the world that would have certain types of, that would do certain types of things and then others who would not do that. I think that if the circumstances were right, we could all do pretty terrible things and pretty, um, pretty inspiring and wonderful things. Yes. Um, there's a bit of a, a tangent, but it's one of the things I believe about teaching actually, that I don't think that creativity is the prov province of kind of a chosen few. Yes. I think that it's, that everybody is as is, is creative as they, they have learned to be. Yeah. And some people have more work to do in, in, yeah. in getting back to that state of not being afraid, you yeah. know. Um, oh, but now my, with my tangent, I've forgotten the question, which is why I shouldn't go off on tangents. Um, you well, asked ask me about the rehearsal, <laughs> weren't you? <laughs> yeah. But also, um, I'll pick up on what you're saying, because I know yeah. you, you teach creative writing in, in, in Auckland. And um, I know from a previous conversation we've had that you use improvisation exercises, theatre-based exercises in your classes and more recently have been working on Shakespeare. So I'm interested in, in how that's come about and the interest that has for you. Well, I think that they're very similar. You yeah. know, I think that any kind of... Um any kind of creativity is at a very kind of basic atomic level, exactly the same, no matter what form you're working in, really. Yeah. Um, I think that as a teacher, the hardest thing is to try and get people into a state where they truly believe that there is no right answer. I think that, that people, we're, we're all conditioned to believe that. You know, there's, there's so many ways, um, ways in which we're told that, you know, basically from the first moment that we can listen. Um, and I think that in, 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 in terms of, with respect to creativity, it's just completely wrong, that actually um, the, the, the sooner you can abandon that idea, the, the more things open up to you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I think, I think that theatre, I mean, somebody said to me quite hilariously a while ago that all writers were failed actors because they were just um, actors who are control freaks. Um, which, which I thought was very funny, and I think there's a lot of truth in it yes, actually, because yes. you know, it, 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 again, at this kind of atomic level, especially with writing fiction, mm. it requires you to inhabit somebody else's mm. um, skin, yeah. but not in a way that you are fooling anybody that actually you truly know what's what it's like to walk around in their skin, mm. but in a way that kind of still preserves a little bit of 
a little bit of you in it, you know. Um, one of the most, uh, one of the kind of lessons, I guess, that stuck with me from my very early training and, and short-lived training in drama was that a, an early drama teacher um, told us that every time we went and saw anything on stage, we should always divide our um, response to it into three very discrete areas. And they were to think about the play, to think about the performance, and to think about the production. Because yeah. any one of these things can fail, and, and one failing can make you think that actually it's the failure of the other. You know, you can have a very good script, but poor actors, or a very good play, but a poor production, and, and you know, or, or, or combinations of that that, that that you can imagine. And I, that, I've really carried that through, I think. I think I, I'm quite often thinking about that in other non-theatrical yeah. aspects of my life. You know, hosting a dinner party. <laughs> you know, how's the play, how's the production, and how's the performance, you know? <laughs> um, uh, I think it's, it's, it's the, that, that kind of layered um, interrelational um, uh, way of understanding what it is to experience something yes. speaks to me. Um, yes. You know, because I, I think that there are, I mean, there, there are just so many layers to experience. It's why there are, there are an infinite number of novels waiting to be written in the world, you know. Um, there, even if we were to write this scene tonight, we could keep on doing it for eternity because everybody's got their own perspective on it. They all bring their own memories. Um, you know, they're, they're, everybody's seeing different things because what we notice, um, you can't see what you ignore. Yeah. Um, you can only see what you notice. So it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All, all of those things are, are, are very interesting to me. Yeah. And I think that probably, you know, following the, that old line that everybody's first novel is some kind of an autobiography. Um, my first novel's about an affair with a, a, that a young girl has with a, um, high school teacher, so I can reassure you all that, that my book isn't kind of factually or autobiographical, but in a lot of ways, it was kind of in a much rawer, more raw way than the luminaries, figuring out how I felt about those issues, really. Yes. I think this is a slightly more sophisticated take yes. maybe on the same, yes. maybe not sophisticated, but just more mature take on the same issue. I think for, for me, one, one, one of the many pleasures reading the luminaries is that it's like it's sort of like how can I put it it's like reading the plan view of a novel if that makes if that makes sense cool. um, and I think partly because of the structure but also I think one becomes very aware of the forces that are at work on the characters and to some extent determining their behavior which as you say is partly to do with the subject but also I think to do with the sort of economic circumstances in which they find themselves I mean it's a sort of a capitalistic society in some ways uh, on, the, on these gold fields. Would you agree? Yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I'm really pleased you say that. That was exactly my, um, my intention in writing the book, um, partly because, you know, when you bring in um, astrology, something of uh, a system of such ill repute as astrology, then, then the, the, what's happening on the kind of terrestrial level of the book mm. has to, in some way, to speak to ideas of fortune yeah. um, and um, fortune telling and, yes. and, and whether we are determined by the stars or whether the stars look that way because we've, we've projected that picture onto them. Um, and I find, I just think it's a very, it's kind of an endlessly fascinating question, yeah. this, the, the extent to which um, we are creatures of will or creatures of fate. Yes. I don't really know what I think about it, you know. Yeah. Um, 
except to say that I think that if you understand fate properly, you have to admit that it's a paradox. And if you understand will properly, you have to admit they're kind of locked in this paradoxical relation with one another. Yes. Um, in the sense that, you know, I mean, any, any one of us in this room could do something completely ridiculous right now. And we'd, that would be all within our will. You know, you could just decide to do it and then it would be done. Um, and in that sense, isn't fate, isn't that a defiance of fate? Yes. Um, I don't know, but in, in the same way, I think that maybe um, fate exists in defiance of the will. So it's yeah. kind of, you kind of keep on going back and forth. I, mean, I think it's also there's a sense of a catharsis, I think, in, in that Aristotelian sense of, of you know, the events unfolding that might be beyond a character's control, and they're not aware of it. They're not aware of, of the wider forces in which they're existing, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah. well, um, one of the... I've actually only very recently read Aristotle's Poetics, which I haven't, hadn't read when I, um, when I wrote the book. Um, but um, what really struck me about that was how he talked about reversals and discoveries being like the most important aspects of, of drama. Yes. And, um, of course, this is eminently true of... of mystery stories, because you always get the big reveal where the person who you thought was the sidekick is actually the villain, or the thing, the object that's supposed to end up in some, such and such a person's hands ends up yeah. in somebody else's hands. And so as, I think that probably, um, you know, when, when you do start thinking about archetypes, um, a whole lot more comes into the book than, yeah. than, than maybe you're aware of, because yes. that's, that's what an archetype is. It's such a, it's such an infinitely wide vessel yeah. that really you can make connections. Yeah. Um, I, I had somebody say to me the other day something that astonished me. They said, you, do you realize that you've written a biblical story? And I said, no, I, I don't think I have. And, and they said, um, well, you've, you've got a, 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 an eminently good, an eminently worthy, good-hearted character who disappears and then reappears. He's attended by 12 men, and the first time we see him, he's shouting the word Magdalena. And I was, I was quite taken aback, because it was, but I think that that's interesting with, that's the thing about archetypes really, is yes. that, that um, they communicate so much more. I mean, that's, again, it's a Jungian idea that actually we have, um, in so many ways, we're, we're, we've inherited all of these very kind of, um, primal or fundamental shapes of storytelling. Yeah. Um, and we, we can just see the connections everywhere, you know. Yeah. Um, I always do a thing with my students at the beginning of, of any um, class when I'm teaching fiction writing, where I'll set them an exercise and then and bet them however much money I've got in my pocket that I, I'll be able to tell them what kind of story they're about to write. Um, because once you boil it down to a most fundamental level, everybody always writes the same story. Yeah. You know, because every story in the world is about a journey into the unknown. Because yeah. um, nobody would ever write something, a, a story where nobody, nobody does, nobody would ever write a story where the character only does things that they've done every day of their lives. You know, because it wouldn't be a story, it would be boring. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I just wanted one more thing, if I may, and then maybe we'll open up to, to yeah. questions from the audience. I mean, I mean, I think it's, I've, I've rarely encountered a novel where, you know, the the plot, the structure, and the language are as one, it seems to me. So often one reads a novel which is about something, but the form doesn't match, the it seems to me, the subject. Mm. And this is a, thing's a fantastic achievement of yours, that you've meshed these together so well. So could we just finish by talking a little about the language, in the, yeah. in the, which is a sort of a, 
19th century for a modern reader, I think. Um, yeah. So could you just talk a little about that? Yes, I think that it probably starts off, the book starts off much more 19th century yes. than yeah. it finishes. Yes. And I think that partly that owes to the fact that I just got excited <laughs> and then kind of ran off, you know, and it sounds more like me at the end. Um, but yeah, in, in order to kind of put that, or in order to play that role really, which is a role that I had to um, play myself, yeah. I think that's, that's what style is, yeah. you know. Um, there's that wonderful line from Frank O'Hara, the American poet, and he said, um, form is like a, a, a really great pair of trousers. You put it on in order to seduce somebody, somebody um, which, I, I, which I think is really brilliant. Um, any, anyway, so to, to kind of inhabit that role or, or enter that role, I first of all just tried to immerse myself as much as I could in 19th century fiction. And I took as many notes as I could and um, um, typed out, like first of all bracketed all the notes in the novels that I was, every time I, I, I came up upon a sentence that I liked the look of, I would bracket it out and keep reading. And then I would go back to the beginning of the novel and, and hold it open and just type out everything that I'd bracketed. And I'd print all of that out. And then I would go back to that folder and, and highlight it a couple of days later and then keep on rereading it as much as possible. Um, which sounds really laborious, but I think it, and it was in a way, but um, I think it's a, a, a kind of letting things pass through you is a really good way of, um, of, of, of letting it become you, really. Um, it kind of becomes the furniture of your heart. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, I did a lot of writing of other people's words before I even began. Um, but it took me, like that, 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 that passage that I read out uh, just now, took me the longest of any part of the book by a country mile. That first sentence took me six months um, to write. And then in total, I was probably reading the equivalent of around about nine months' work, um, which luckily sped up, you know. Um, that would have... <laughs> I'd be very old otherwise <laughs> by the time this book was done. Um, but it, I think that there is... You're kind of waiting for that click, you know, you're waiting for the cogs to come together and. For, for a voice that feels sufficiently yours, yes. um, but also a voice that, that is, is drawing all, all of the things that you admire and, and, want, to, and want to pay homage to. Yes, um, yes. So, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, and it was, it was, it was great fun. Um, yeah. And I think that, that an, another thing actually about writing in a voice or, or a style, I mean, the two words are really interchangeable in many ways, um, of another century, is that I think it's very important to remember that um, all, there's so many cultural uh, ideas and prejudices and assumptions that we have that are completely codified in the way that we use language and the terms that we will use and not use. And so I think that you have to remember when you're reading the literature of another century to, um, first of all, I think immersion's a really good thing, um, but also to pay attention to, to what attitudes are kind of lying behind the, the um, not only the vocabulary, but also the syntactical constructions. Um, one of my you know, favorite things about the 19th century 
um, as a kind of an era of literature is how endlessly hypothetical the conversation is, the dialogue is. Yeah. Um, you know, you'll so often have two people sitting in a Jane Austen novel and one of them says, you know, I think that virtue is like this. What do you think? And then the kind of the attention of the room will go to some, then they'll be put on the spot and they have to exercise their wit and then they kind of come back and, and it's, everything's kind of hypothetical in this very, um, um, it's, it's a game, it's a, it's a, it's a game of wits. Um, and I love that, and, I've, and I have it with certain people in my life, but I think that, that, that in general, our conversations don't tend to be like that, because no. we've got, we're kind of more visual now. We don't, um, uh, you know, we, we, we go to other places to be, um, um, to be entertained, I suppose. Um, and so part of being able to write scenes where, you know, characters like Lydia Wells in the novel, who is a real master at, at kind of verbal swordplay, I had to partly think about what kind of issues were really being talked about and what things were not being said and what, what assumptions were lying underneath these various uses of language that were unfamiliar to me. Yeah. Yes, yes. Will you take some questions? Oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, very happy to take questions. Uh, you may have noticed when you came in, we have three pairs of radio mics, uh, two at the top, two in the middle, and as you can see, two just coming in in the stall's level. Um, it's most helpful if you can make your way to the mics to ask the question. Um, we'll attempt to sort of zip round as, as quickly as, as we can. Um, what I would ask, if I may, is um, to try to keep your questions fairly short, um, rather than going on with a, a, something too lengthy. And secondly, at the risk of stating the obvious, um, if your question could be a question, that would be appreciated. Um, please. To read? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, in preparation for uh, writing the luminaries, I could just rattle off um, authors from the 19th century. Um, we, we, when I was uh, researching this book, I was kind of dividing my reading life between um, 19th century fiction and also crime fiction of the 20th century, and in my mind kind of trying to bring them together. Um, so I, I've always said that um, I feel that the luminaries now, this wasn't really intentional, but the luminaries is a kind of a cross between Murder on the Orient Express, which I mentioned, and the brothers Karamazov. If they were kind of could meet, I think that this would be, might be what, what came out. Um, so um, Dostoevsky definitely and Tolstoy and um, Henry James I love, uh, George Eliot and um, Wilkie Collins for sure. and. Um, and a wee bit of Dickens, but I haven't, I haven't actually read that much Dickens, I, that many um, novels of Dickens. Um, so those would be kind of my big, oh, and Melville, and Moby Dick was very, very important to me. Um, so those would be my kind of big 19th century influences. And in the 20th century, um, I, think, I think my favorite crime novelist is James M. Cain, um, who wrote uh, uh, The Postman Always Rings Twice, and. Uh, Double Indemnity, who have both really marvellous books, and Mild Mildred Pierce, which is really wonderful too. Um, and uh, Raymond Chandler, um, I quite like, but I think he's not as good as James M. Cain. And Graham Greene I love. Um, so it's kind of a lot of, and Patricia Highsmith, I guess, and Agatha Christie. So um, yeah, um, so th those are kind of the two tributary streams, I guess, that flowed into the book. Um, and, and apart from that, I, would, I, I think my reading life is probably quite eclectic. Um, I, I generally find that a book 
for me, is always born out of reading nonfiction. It's hardly ever born out of reading fiction. Because um, I'll read a book and think, how could I translate my excitement for this idea into something fictional? Um, but I think that's probably because I'm a Libra. Um. <laughs> Please. I hope this is not a superficial question, but would you like to comment on Sydney as a halfway house of wickedness and New Zealand as a site of <laughs> consequences, uh, sometimes redemptive and sometimes fatal? <laughs> That's a one beautifully worded question. Um, do you mean in the context of the novel? I do. Um, okay, wonderful. Yes, I, I thought that I was worried that I was going to be, um, that, that you were quoting some kind of new slogan for the city that I hadn't, I hadn't heard about. <laughs> um, um, well, um, in Anna Wetherill and Emery Staines, who are the two characters in the book who are the luminaries, who, who play the luminaries, the, the sun and the moon, and who in many ways are the most important figures of the book, um, are both born in Sydney. Um, and it was very important for, for, for me, for them to be born under Antipodean skies. Um, one, of, one of the, the early conceptions of the novel that I had, which was a very, very bad idea, and I'm, thankfully I moved away from it, um, was this idea that, um, that the Earth, possibly like the human brain, could have hemispheres, and that the southern hemisphere could be quite a different kind of place than the northern hemisphere, and our skies could be quite different. And I was kind of thought about making a novel with hemispheres, it was a terrible idea. Um, but the, the, the kind of antipathy and element came out of that, and so, you know... Um, you had um, Hong Kong as well, so you have got the antipathies, yes. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was also very important to me actually to write an antipathean version of a Victorian novel, because one of the things about the Victorian novel is that it, there are a great many assumptions it makes about its readership, which of course was relatively narrow com compared to a contemporary readership. Um, and so one of the things in the book that I wanted to do was, instead of having untranslated passages of French or, or Italian or German even that you might find in a 19th century novel from Europe, um, I wanted to have untranslated passages of Māori and Cantonese, which are primarily spoken languages, to kind of flip that tradition on its head and kind of comment on it a little bit. Um, so all this to say is that I'm a great friend of Sydney, and I was, um, <laughs> I'm kind of dodging the question a little bit. Um, yes, no, I mean, it, convicts are also very helpful for mystery novelists, because um, they, they make such good villains. Yeah, so I, I exploited that part of Sydney's history. I hope that's all right. <laughs> um, on the middle level, number four, and then we'll go to the top level, number six, after that, please. Um, would you mind sharing your writing process, when and how and you, you do your writing every day? Yeah, sure. Well, when I'm not writing, I don't have a process. So I can only really talk about when I'm working on a book. Um, or when I'm working on something shorter, I guess, um, which is really quite unglamorous. Um, it just involves me getting up and, and setting a target and just going, you know. Um, though I will say it, it, it changes quite a bit depending on where in the novel I am. Um, I'm a great believer in not starting writing too soon. And, and so in, with, in the case of The Luminaries, I, I read for two years before I even set anything down. And, well, I read for a year and a half, and then it took me six months to write that first sentence. So it kind of all up, it was about a year, uh, two years. Um, 
And that was really important to the process to just to kind of read and, and daydream and, and take notes and, and keep the novel preserved in everything that it possibly could be without kind of fixing it yet. Um, it's one thing that I see quite often in my students is that I feel they start writing before they even know what they want to say, um, which to me is too early. Like it, if you've got writer's block, it's not even, writer's block isn't a thing, I don't think. It just means that you, you're doing the wrong thing. You should be in the reading phase. You know, you should be gathering. You shouldn't be trying to um, put anything out into the world. Um, so reading comes first. And then um, once the novel's got a bit of momentum, um, I just, I, I get up in the morning, I, I try and write as much as I can. And I found, um, well, really on this book particularly, that I can't shorten my writing day. Um, but that what it involves is from around about 10 a.m. till about maybe 5.30, a lot of scowling um, and a lot of sighing and a lot of um, cut, cut and paste and kind of going back and reading over what I'm, I've done before and then getting fed up with myself and going online and getting fed up with getting annoyed that I'm online and, you know, coming back again. Um, and I've tried as, as much as I can to shorten this scowling period um, but I just can't. I, I need all of that. I need that frustration to build for then the really productive hour to happen at the end of the day, which it usually does in, in that last hour. Um, and so that's, I kind of wish that I could harness that a little bit better. Um, but, but the other thing is that um, during the day, I'll read aloud my work to myself um, so often that usually by the end of the day, I'll have whatever I've done memorized. Um, or just about, you know. And then in the evening, um, I, after dinner, I, in the case of this book, I, I read aloud everything I'd written that day, if it was worth it, you know, if I'd written enough, um, to my partner. And um, he, would, he would listen as we were making dinner and um, then offer comments, which was a perilous enterprise because it <laughs> meant that I was very likely to get extremely mad. Um, and then sometimes we'd have an argument and... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, he's a very long-suffering um, person, and the worst thing about it is that he's a poet, so when he reads his stuff to me, it, it's over in like two minutes. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, um, and I think that, anyway, the, the, the last thing I'll say is I think that, that that's very, very important to me, that, that, that part of the process. First of all, reading aloud to yourself. I think that, that, that um, you just, you catch so many things that you've, the, the, you know, words that you've used three times on a page, things that sound, sounded all right when you wrote them, but really dumb when you say them out loud. Um, any kind of inconsistencies or judders, you know, you catch. But I think that reading aloud to somebody else, if you're lucky enough to have somebody who um, will at least pretend to be <laughs> listening, um, is, is even more helpful because um, you get scared when you're reading to somebody else because all of a sudden your fear, you're like, actually, is this just really dumb? And I think that that fear helps you look at your work in a completely different way. Yeah, so th those, those would be my recommendations. <laughs> Number six, please, and then we'll come down there. I've probably answered this question, but it's such an effort for me to get back to my seat. I'll stay here and ask it. Um, I, Dostoevsky once uh, said that to write well you must suffer. Other than your death nightmares, did you suffer? And did you suffer in that uh, landscape? Oh, that's an interesting question. No to the last part. 
Um, I actually didn't really spend very much time in Hokitika. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've done a lot of tramping in New Zealand, so I know what it's like to be out in the rain and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, but that's interesting. I don't... I think, that, I think that it is a kind of suffering to have an artistic ambition, actually, because until you do it, it's not done. Like, it's, it's, it's a failure until it's not a failure anymore. Um, and so my experience of writing this book was of just pure terror for five years, followed by acceleration, <laughs> a short period of acceleration. Um, and so that, it's, it's a kind of suffering. Like, I think that I wouldn't want to glamorize it by, by comparing it to, to, to real human suffering. Um, but I think that it is, it's scary. Um, but the other thing I'll say about um, Dostoevsky is that he was a Scorpio, and it's a classic Scorpio comment, so. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Uh, a lot of people talk about and experience the frustration young writers and artists feel when confronted with really good work and having personal really good taste and then you write something or you create something and it just really falls short. Um, and I know that obviously you have to fight through that, but did you experience that discovery of, oh, not actually as good as I want to be, or are reading or experiencing. Did you like? How did you fight through that? Well, I, I have definitely, I definitely always have that experience. I think that anybody would, if anybody didn't have that experience, I would question their um, artistry. I think, um, you know, this this book was frightful for so long. Um, and I think that that's, I mean, that's, that's the process. You, your, your book is always bad before it's good. Your ideas are always bad before they're good. Um, and I think that one of the scary things about being a, a novelist in particular is that you never see behind the scenes of any other novel. So you, you're not with, I don't know, whoever, you're not with Henry James when he first writes this really stupid, dumb sentence. Um, and then kind of says, what am I thinking, like, Henry? You know, like, get on, get on message, you know. Um, you, you don't see all of that, and you don't see all of the, 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 the scenes that are on the cutting room floor or anything. So you're kind of confronted with all these works that to you seem, seem perfect or dazzling or um, at least complete. And then you look at your work, and there's such an, as you say, there's such an enormous gulf. Um, well, I mean, I think that, that I, it's hard to know how to deal with that, um, except to say that I think that good things come out of worship. Um, there's a quote of, from, uh, of David Foster Wallace's that somebody told me once that I really liked where he said, you should write from the part of yourself that loves rather than the part of yourself that wants to be loved. Um, and I think that if you remember that, if you, if you remember that you're in it in order to worship the form and you're in it in order to, um, you know, because you love to read, then, then your work will inevitably, at some stage, become not bad anymore. Um, but you can't, you can't avoid the badness. You know, I think that actually this is, this is one of the reasons why being in a creative writing program is a really good idea, so long as it's a, a good program or the right program for you. Is that it, just, it simply means that other people are going through the same things that you are. Um, we were mentioning backstage a very, very good friend of mine who's also a novelist who I went through at the University of Iowa with, an Iowa Writers' Workshop named Justin Torres. He's got a, a novel out that you may know called uh, We're the Animals that came out a couple of years ago. And 
there's this one episode that I had with Justin that, that, that for me perfectly encapsulates the value of having people in your life who are willing to talk with you and who are going through the same things that you are. We were, we were at a bar one night. Uh, do I have time to tell, tell yeah, this yeah, anecdote? Yeah, yeah. Um, we were at a bar one night and um, I, he came along and he'd done the, um, the Myers-Briggs test online and I was there with my, a friend of mine and um, he said, I've done this Myers-Briggs test and we said, oh cool, like, what questions were on it? And he said, well one of the questions was, which do you value higher, mercy or justice? And I said, but isn't that a really stupid question though, because everybody in the world would say, and then I said justice, and my friend said mercy at the exact same time. <laughs> and um, I looked at her and I said, you know, you spineless fool, what are you talking about? And she looked at me and she said, you stone-hearted monster, what are you talking about? And we started having this argument, and the argument lasted until well after the bar closed. We all three of us cried at some point in this argument. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was extremely intense. And we, were ending up, we ended up in the gutter outside the bar, you know, like kind of tear-stained and like, you know, staggering around. And we'd finally gotten to this point. There is a point to this story, I promise. Um, we'd finally gotten to the point where we realized that my conception of justice was a justice that was inherently merciful. And their conception of mercy was of a mercy that was only ever ad administered when it was just. And we needed that time. We couldn't have done that. We couldn't have got there alone. Um, if, I just, if, some, if I'd done the Myers-Briggs test alone in my room, I would have just said, oh, what do I think? And then I would have just clicked it and gone on. But I think that you know, there, to, to get yourself as an as a aspiring artist, into an environment where people will let you keep talking until you understand whatever it is, or they will keep challenging you and they will keep, they, they just won't, they'll never go home, you know, <laughs> even when the bar closes, they won't go home. Um, I, I think that that's really important. And, and for me, that really, that really helped me get through those, those, those dark days. Um, no. Ladies and gentlemen, there, there are copies of the luminaries available for purchase uh, in the foyer of the hall. Um, just to say that, unfortunately, Ellie has a, quite an urgent appointment to go to, so can only sign for about 30 minutes. So what we would ask is that uh, she would just sign her name, if that's okay, <laughs> but not individually dedicate. I can do it really fast. I miss yeah. out some of the vowels. Yeah. So it's <laughs> she, but doesn't really have time, unfortunately, to individually dedicate the books or indeed have photographs taken or anything like that. In order to expedite this, she has already pre-signed a lot of books which are available for purchase. So we will get through as many of you as we can. But do please join me in thanking Eleanor Catton. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. Please visit our website www.swf.org.au for more great talks recorded live from the festival.